0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plotlines. I'm your host, Connor, and today I have a great conversation for you. Uh, I have Gavin Ashenden with me, the former chaplain to the Queen. We are talking about Islam and its effect on Great Britain today. Uh, how are you doing, Gavin?
1: I'm doing very well, Connor. Nice to see you again.
0: Nice to see you too. Uh, so, my sort of view of Uh, Islam and its effect on Britain from sort of an outside perspective is that it has grown artificially through immigration and that because Muslims, when they, or sorry, basically when immigrants come in, they generally have more children based on um, the fact that they sort of haven't been uh, corrupted by the by modernity as much, especially if they're from sort of Asia or Africa and, the, and also the population of Britain is not growing as fast uh, amongst, in, amongst the English and Scottish and Welsh. So it seems to me that there's a real threat that Islam could possibly become a, a dominant force or even already is influence. Is that kind of uh, how it is?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, we need to tidy up some of the things you've said in broad outline. Um, Let me just say that for the last 25 years or so, the left um, and, and liberals have been laughing at me and others saying, you're clearly phobic and frightened and irrational, you can't count. Because all this talk about a dominant Islamic culture is nonsense. Look, look how few of them there are. But I think the phrase "demography is destiny" is obviously right. Uh, and um, if nothing changes, and then again, my left, my leftish friends say, but things do change. Um, so, with that caveat, if nothing changes, there'll be a Muslim majority somewhere between two fifty and two seventy. Muhammad is already by far the most prevalent boy's name uh, in the country. And so it seems uh, unlikely that the numbers can grow from uh, from a few million to half the population, but that is the, that is the, the trajectory. Um, and this isn't just an anxiety from people who like their own culture, um, who are conservatives, who like to conserve what is good about our own culture. Again, the left and multiculturalism have done a very uh, profound psychological job on people who quite understandably um, want to conserve their own place. Anti-colonialism only works one way it seems against, against the whites and against Western culture. Um, but the reason this is concerning is because um, we have these three main cultural streams I suppose Uh, Christianity and post-Christianity. By by post-Christianity, I mean a society borrowing its ethics, mainly from Christendom. Um, And then we have secular society, which wants to make uh, its own ethics. And um, and then we have Islamic society. The leftists have always thought that Islam would give way in the same way that Christianity has. They're very badly educated. And they imagine Islam is a form of uh, Arabic Judeo-Christianity. They don't realize, for example, that Islam is a hybrid between politics and religion of a very sophisticated kind. And perhaps they don't also know from history that only only once in history, I think, has Islam ever been rolled back from countries where it became a majority in. And that would be um, after the convivencia in Spain, when the Spanish took up arms and forcibly ejected Muslims from society. So if you take those as facts, and they are facts, well, apart from my, my suggestion that Islam is of a different constituent nature than Christianity, well, that's a fact too. Um, then one of the things we're faced with is a very rapidly changing Europe, and I would say a rapidly changing America. Uh, I think, for example, in terms of what's happened in Gaza and Israel, the way in which, in America, uh, the whole... The whole populist response under 30 um, has been so profoundly pro-Palestinian. Without, it seems, anyone understanding what the issues were, I mean, it wouldn't be so bad uh, if you had people pro-Palestinian by informed conviction. They'd be entitled to do that. But it's when it's done by ignorance and the chanting from the Palestine, from the river to the sea, is made by people who don't know what river and can only vaguely guess at what sea. um, (laughs) And, um, and 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 are calling for genocide. Um, uh, as people have said, the difference between the Nazis and the Palestinian Muslims is that the Nazis were ashamed about their genocide of the Jews, whereas the Palestinian Muslims are quite the opposite. Which again is a, it raises moral questions that we're entitled to ask. So, the problem that we face in in this country and in Europe and perhaps in America, though I think the demographics are different there, is what is going to take happen when Islamic culture begins to predominate. Firstly, in certain cities, it will be patchy, it will be urban, uh, and then secondly, more widely. And and in case one wanted an imaginative uh, story writers' uh, examination of the issues, then Michel Hulubeck, which is a name that's almost as difficult to say as it is to spell, was a frenchman i think a belgian perhaps who wrote on the day that charlie his book was published on the day of the charlie hebdo murders in paris uh, an imagined scenario in france where of the 10 million muslims there they decide to have to start an islamic party so that's one of the next things that will happen in european politics uh, at the moment uh, islam votes with the left because there's a a an alliance between the left and Islam, both for different reasons, which will break down quite soon. I mean, it, the point where it begins to break down already is queers for Palestine. When the queers, <laughs> when, when the queers who are for Palestine would, if they went there or in some other Islamic countries, be thrown off the top of high buildings for being queer, mm-hmm. having no sense at all of the political incongruity of, of their value system. So, I mean, that's the, that's the extreme point at which that alliance has bro- broken down. But it'll break down more and more. And um, what I think we're going to see in England is uh, a form of apartheid. At least I hope we're going to see a form of apartheid because only with a form of social apartheid can uh, Christian culture be saved from the creeping expansion of Islamic culture in other words if we have for example eight or ten cities that are majority Muslim and they say well we would like to govern ourselves by Sharia law which they would be entitled to do if you're a democrat if that's your primary value then other parts of the country will say well we don't want Sharia law and therefore you will have a form of apartheid between uh, cities that are governed by majority Muslims following some aspect of Sharia law and other parts of the country that aren't well, we have models for this already. Lebanon is one. It's not a happy model, and the reason it's not happy is because there's no evidence in history that Islam makes an easy neighbor to live with. Um, you have to give them the, their credit, which is that they are, they are colonialist and expansionist and missionary, and they are committed to a, to a, 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 a thorough Islamification of any society that they are part of. And in that respect, Christians should give them respect. So, so should we be.
0: Indeed, uh, there's a lot there. I would say that in America, it's things are more likely to be hispanicized or hispanified uh, in America than Islamified. So in that sense, though, unfortunately, there are, it tends to be many Hispanics that come to America and then they become Protestant, but there is a theoretical chance of a... Catholicization of America more than uh, Islamification of America uh, through demographics, at least. And mm-hmm. then along the lines of, you know, so you t- said how the Spanish uh, achieved, sort of, um, achieved the ridding of Islam from Spain. Does Britain? Does Britain? Because a lot of these people, majority of the Muslims that have come uh, to actually, yeah, I think only like three percent of Muslims, maybe, uh, are native English. Uh, does Britain need to take a, a, a page out of the playbook of uh, the Reconquista?
1: Well, I'm I'm afraid it's a it's a horrible question you'd rather not be asked um the the, it's a very difficult ethical question for a christian because um left to myself i would say i'm i'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven before i'm a nationalist i i think i might have been a nationalist 30 years ago but i can't see any nation that i'm part of now that i would want to fight for i mean I, i think english society has been so sufficiently multiculturalized that there's that the society I grew up in, I mean, if you look, for example, at that video of London in the 1950s and 60s when I was a child, the past is indeed a different country. It's, it's completely different. Would I have fought for that one? I think I probably would. My father did. Would I fight for this one? There's nothing to fight for. I think the, I think the die is past. I might struggle energetically to keep the place I live as Christian as possible, but I don't think there's any, there's any prospect at all of armed struggle. I mean, one of the reasons is that um, the English... I mean, let's just say in some fantasy land that the army hadn't been completely uh, wokeified, like the American army has. The army is about 60,000 people. At Eid in Birmingham, uh, something like about 80,000 young men of military age who are Muslim gather together. Um, No politician would ever call upon the army to fire upon Muslims. So, well,
0: I wasn't thinking so much. I was just thinking d- deportation. Since they immigrated here, they theoretically can be immigrated out. That's what I mean.
1: Well, I may have jumped the gun a bit to, 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 to even kind of have a pun, but immigration would only happen by force, it wouldn't happen voluntarily.
0: Well, yeah, but like, I mean, just as d- deportation, you know, a, deportation is illegal, is it not a legal right to every country?
1: Well, only if there's any, only if there's a sense of national identity and any will. There yeah. are no politicians. I mean, there are literally no politicians.
0: Who, I mean, you do have um, a Hindu prime minister, and in Scotland there is a Muslim uh, uh, first minister,
1: and a Muslim mayor of London, and another eighteen Muslim mayors throughout our large conurbations. But there are no politicians who could even conceive of that as a solution. Um, and even if there were politicians who could conceive of it, uh, we live in a country where, I don't know, I read today that something like 10% of people are longing to be locked down for fear of COVID. Uh, <laughs> I know. They want the rule of six reappears. You can, so they want the state to ban anyone meeting more than five people. Uh, so I think that's what I meant by saying there's no country to fight for. Okay. Um, the country I grew up in has been changed. So drastically, it doesn't exist anymore. And anyway, even even if that was the case, I've, I think I'm quite glad to be spared the ethical issue of whether or not, as a Christian, I should I should pick up take up arms in order to fight and kill other people for for a, a country. I don't I, I I don't think that's what Jesus wants. I I, I think I'm probably, but it's very difficult to know because um if if the, if the done that, then you'd have more So you know, at what what point, if my father hadn't picked up arms to fight the Nazis, we'd we'd have um, a particular kind of Nazi country. Um, So it's the the whole issue of whether Christians should pick up arms is a very very complicated one. And I'm afraid I'm simply not clear in my own mind at what point my responsibility uh, as a citizen would stretch that far.
0: Do you think age has a lot to do with this? I think I think younger people. Have a stronger desire to fight for their to uh, sort of retain their the culture.
1: I'd say the opposite. I would say that there are, the, the, there's a kind of divide between I am probably fifty and younger, young and under. People aged fifty um, have been better educated and have got a memory of when society of not being brainwashed by education or by multiculturalism. I think people under forty-five. There are very few of them uh, who have any sense of value beyond the ones that they were forced that were forced to accept by their education and that they've experienced. So I don't. I don't find very many people under forty-five <clears throat> have any vision for a changed society. In fact, most of them appear to want uh, something more totalitarian and mm. more communist. Again, they have. They have no sense of the. Incredible, you know, as both Peterson and Rod Dreyer talk about, they have no sense at all of the ruthlessness of socialism and Marxism and the human toll once it begins to impose its will. There's a very naivety, I mean, a, deli- a deliberately constructed naivety uh, on most Western children um, who have now under the age of 40. I
0: do think that sort of a strong man is is more and more popular amongst young people these days but i think that comes from the fact that we weren't told how i maybe this is different in england but we weren't really told how to live a good life so we we almost need somebody to tell us how to live a good life
1: well i mean that's so that's partly the history of um <clears throat> of of nationalism and fascism in Europe in the 1930s mm-hmm. in the face of the collapse of, uh, of economies and the collapse of nations or the threats to nation-straits, two or three strong men arose. I mean, obviously Franco, Mussolini, and Hitler, the obvious ones. Um, and they're three very different people. Uh, and the three fascisms of Europe, German fascism, Italian, and Spanish, again, were three very different ideologies, despite the fact they're lumped under one... Uh, under one label. So it's certainly true that when crises come, people turn for a political messiah. That's part of human nature. Um, I, I I just hate to think what kind of political messiah might emerge uh, in the present circumstances. Though, in one sense, Trump may be part of a response to that profound psychological anxiety. Um, but we'll we'll have to see at the next election. That that would be colourful.
0: Yeah. Also, Islam hasn't just you sort of been growing amongst the people, and Sharia law, you know, isn't just possibly coming through. But you know, you uh, you had a, there was a situation where the Quran was read at a at I believe was in an Anglican service uh, a couple of years ago. So it's. It's sort of seeping into Christians.
1: Well, this is a this was a, an expression of a rather ignorant form of uh of interreligious dialogue. Um, though I was part of it, I mean, for about 20 years, I, I was part of this whole culture which looked at <clears throat> Judaism, Christianity, Islam as the Abrahamic cousins. And now I realize historically and theologically that's complete nonsense. But I had to I had to read my way into Islam quite some way before I discovered that. So in, in, in those days, there was a sense that, well, since the Quran, uh contained references to Abraham and to David and to Miriam, Mary, and to Isha, Jesus, uh, and Joseph, then surely there was more, you know, at least as much in common as it was different but the fact is that mohammed created these personas out of nowhere they don't the fact they have the same name you know if 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 uh, someone with your name cloned your identity in in peru and said i'm connor you'd say you know you may have the same name as me and the same identity card but but actually you're somebody very different uh, you're not the same despite the same name and the same is true with these religious figures in the quran and the bible they may have the same name They're not the same character or the same person. They were constructed on purpose by Muhammad to provide a a superior overlap in the Quran for a prophetic tradition that he was jealous of and wanted to give expression to himself. So one of the things that happened was that um, a rather ignorant Scottish dean. Who happened to be as homosexual as he was ignorant which is very in both cases <laughs> uh, decided that he would um, replace Saint Paul in the feast the Anglican Feast of the Epiphany in Glasgow Cathedral was reading from the Quran and I guess probably since I don't imagine he's very well read, certainly not in the Quran and absolutely not in Arabic he, uh, he invited some the Muslims to provide the reading for him. And they they did him proud. They found one of the most offensive readings in the whole Quran, the Surah, that says, God doesn't have a son. So here on the Feast of the Epiphany, where the wise men come from all the religions and Christianity celebrates the fact that all deep wisdom longs for Jesus, the Muslims invited to this service as an act of interfaith hospitality said, yeah, no, that's rubbish. (laughs) And um, so... I only got, I, didn't, I, I read about it, I thought this has nothing to do with me, it was in a separate province. Scotland's a different ecclesiastical province to England. But the students who knew about me uh, in Glasgow, who went to Glasgow Cathedral wrote to me because they were, they were better educated than the dean and they, they said, <laughs> you, sh- you shouldn't have done this, these 21 year olds, um, whereupon he reported them to the police for, for homophobia on the grounds he said that challenging his judgment was quite clearly a homophobic hate crime and they they ought to be prosecuted and be sent and be sent to prison for it. So that was a point when they they wrote to me and said, we're having a really tough time here. Any chance you'd give us a hand? So at that point I wrote about it in the times quite critically. Um, And uh, uh, that was a, that was a very creative watershed for me, but it was one that I'm very glad happened. Uh, And, um, of course, it changed nothing in this silly man well, not and well, it wasn't intended to change anything. It was intended to draw attention to the religious stupidity of it um which it which at least it did uh, so that was just an example of the ignorance of the uh, interfaith communities and the way in which they talk to one another and misunderstand each other's religions and precepts.
0: I'm not even sure you could say that that. Dean is, uh, is Christian, though. I mean, just the way you describe him, he doesn't seem right. to know what he believes.
1: Well, he's certainly not Christian in any sense that I would define it. But he's, but, but the problem is that um, how you how you define the word Christian. But I mean, essentially, he I would have thought that uh, as he's a good example of progressive Christianity, which is, I would say, so sub-Christian. As indeed, not to be a Christian, maybe even be anti-Christian.
0: A good um, example of a bad example.
1: Yes, that yes, that's right. Um, I mean, <laughs> are, you know, there there are lots like him in 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 liberal Protestantism. In fact, it's made up of people who share his views. They don't believe in heaven and hell. Uh, they they don't believe that sexuality is a matter of uh, moral purity. Um, they don't believe in the uniqueness of Jesus. Um, Uh, And they are on the whole relativists rather than absolutists. So none of these are are expressions of classic or orthodox historic Christianity. So that would be why people like me would not call them Christian.
0: Has there been any like sort of polling or demographic uh, uh, look at how many Christians in England actually believe in uh, Christianity, like a real Christianity?
1: Well, we know how many people go to um go to church in the Church of England. It's about six hundred thousand people on a Sunday. Uh it's a tiny, tiny proportion of a population, it must be about seventy million. Um and of those, I would think seventy percent would probably be progressive. Um because the Catholics have left, the very few Anglo Catholics anymore. Um and so there'd be probably Maybe thirty percent evangelicals, um, and then the, the, that's that's the Anglicans. There are a few other Protestants, There's some Pentecostals, about six hundred thousand Orthodox who believe, and probably somewhere between two and four million Catholics. Hard to know the quality of Catholic belief amongst those numbers, but I would put it at higher rather than lower. Uh, and in yeah. fact, one of the one of the things I've been saying for some time uh, is that it's time that we got over the historical. Sense of Catholic disability in this country from having been excluded by a pretty vicious establishment that spent quite a lot of time burning and disemboweling priests in the 16th century and then excluding them for the next 200 years from all professional uh, walks of life. Uh, Now, Catholics are the greatest, constitute the greatest number of Christians in this country, and I'd like to see both Catholic laity and Catholic clergy take the responsibility for that position but at the moment they still seem to me to be fairly historically and culturally battered and timid but i think that ideally ought to change
0: yeah what well, what was the mindset of the time when they started sort of I- importing muslims into the united kingdom because it seems to me that on the face uh, from a historical perspective, Islam seems like sort of a long-standing rival or enemy to Christianity. So, what was sort of why, why did this happen? Why is this? Why was this? And I like you know, who who started this?
1: I, I, I'm afraid I think that's a really complicated question, and okay. I, I, I don't really know the answer. Um, I mean, it's it's clearly a mixture of. It's clearly a mixture of factors. One is that Muslims wanted to come to the West, um, which is rather odd, but they want to come to the West for the benefits of the society, but they were fleeing an Islamic society to come here. So there's a contradiction involved in that, which I think is one of the reasons why the left thought they could be secularized uh, and sexualized. Um, They came partly because uh, of falling birth rates and the need for an economy to be driven by immigration, Um, but it wasn't done sensibly or with any sense of responsibility. There are other places in the world that have done, both Canada and Australia developed much more sophisticated immigration point systems where they said, well, we recognise we want an influx of people, but these are the kind of people we want. That's never happened in England in any particular way at all. So I'm afraid it's mainly incompetence. I mean, the, the tectonic pressures of uh of mobile societies the lure of the standard living in the west and complete incompetence and ignorance by our politicians and maybe since we get the politicians we deserve complete incompetence uh, and ignorance of the british people um so but that's not but but i will say that i've spent most of my life saying to my communities um it would be far better to be Christian than non-Christian and a great deal better to be Christian than to be Muslim. But you can't, you know, you, all, all you can do is, is say these things in public and hope that people can hear.
0: The British Empire, one of the reasons a lot of these uh, immigrants came into the country was because, from what I understand, because... Of the British Empire and its connections to some place like Pakistan, like th- this opened up. You know that's that's why there's a number. From my understanding, there's a lot of Hindus and a lot of Pakistanis uh, be- from India and Pakistan because of the connections with the empire.
1: Yes, um, people had the right. Uh, in fact, many of them were British were British citizens, uh, and they they had the right to come to Britain, they they had British passports, so um, although although the the ups and downs or the benefits and vices of colonialism are much debated, and people like Nigel Bigger or the uh, African Anglican Archbishop of York say that in their opinion there were at least as many benefits as vices. One of the benefits was certainly that a good number of people who were not indigenous Caucasians uh had political access to come here and did come here
0: and also one of the sort of neg- one of the negatives that has come from this is that there have been uh, you know the the government from what i understand has sort of covered up uh gangs that have attacked women uh in in england uh, over the past Years. Well, I, I,
1: I think I think that's a separate. I mean, it's obviously related in the sense that the gangs are are immigrant gangs. But I'm I'm afraid at this point I would I would blame not the immigrants, but I mean obviously the people who did it to blame. But I would blame mm-hmm. racism and the whole notion of thought crime. Um, one of the things I'd like to do, though, I don't think I dare do it, is to try and raise the question that, that all thought crime is pernicious and essentially illusory that's n- that's not to say that there aren't racism racist or there isn't racism. But I'm not sure racism is what people think it is. I mean certainly for a start, if you're anti if, if you don't like Islam, people assume that's a branch of racism when obviously Muslims are made up of so many different races, it can't possibly be. Um, but what they really mean by racism is you don't like your neighbor. And um, one thing I want reason I would like to get rid of the idea of racism is it it's terribly inaccurate. Christians already got a very carefully refined notion of what it is to sin against your neighbor, whether your neighbor is taller than you or darker than you or more stupid than you or cleverer than you. Uh, We already have that as a sin in a much more interesting way than to do with um, how much um, melanin you've got in your skin, which is a really stupid, uh, stupid way of distinguishing between people given the gradation of skin color. I mean, it's, it's just incompetent, I, I, but unfortunately, because the left have been pushing racism so hard, everyone is now terrified of being thought racist, made worse by the fact that nobody knows what racism is because you can't define it. And so the very, very stupid police who had the responsibility for defending these indigenous girls who were being gang raped and molested did nothing because they were afraid of being criticized for being racist if they took any action against the immigrant communities who are behaving in this highly criminal and perniciously immoral way. I and mean, that's just, I mean, it's just so unbelievably stupid and immoral. That's almost beyond belief, but that's what's happened to our society. So again, I mean, it's an example of why would I want to fight for any society characterized by that kind of, that kind of category error and stupidity? We're, we're past saving, I'm afraid. Um, so I worry, if my, you know, I mean, I'll be dead soon. Uh, well, we'll all be dead soon, but I'll be dead sooner than some. Um, and uh, so I worry for my children, but, but all I can say, I've done the best I can. Uh, and I couldn't do, you know, there's, not, there's nothing more I could do um, apart from educate my children and take part in public debate on behalf of Christ and Christianity, which I've done. But you know, there, there, are, there are good times and bad times in history. I've been very privileged to, leave, to live through a very good time. Um, I've been very lucky or blessed, whichever language you use. But I think we're about to enter a much more disruptive period, a much more dystopian period of human history, um, partly because of the triumph of these ideas and the weakness and insipidness of the Christianity that much of my generation followed to its
0: shame. Do you think the good period that you're talking about was kind of a mirage though? Cuz from what I can tell is there the underlying problems of the last 30 40 years is is just easier to see now.
1: Well, it depends what you so I, I understand what you're saying, but again I I'd, I'd use a different framework. I would say that um, you know, there are periods in society where it's comfortable in your civilization. Uh, And, you know, the comfort is that there's not, not much, not much warfare, not much disease, not much hunger. Um, And one of the things that people, one of the myths that people have been taken in by is that progress is unstoppable. Uh, in, In fact, I think we're, I think there are other periods of life where society was far more beautiful and attractive. And I would, i would put the late middle ages it's crazy people use the word medieval as a uh, as a pejorative term look at the look at the building look at the intellectual thought look at the religious life um look at the way in which the uh, the monks and the nuns and the monasteries provided all the social care uh look at you look look today at the level of mental illness and stress and confusion uh, the the lack of belonging the uh, the the, the the psychological terror of our society so I think I lived through a period when there wasn't any war where I lived and there was a great deal to eat and drink and there was medicine and that was a very very great blessing but people who believe in the myth of progress imagine it will continue Uh, and it won't continue where I think we're heading towards really a number of serious collapses. And I don't mean the ecological disaster. I think the ecological disaster is a form of social manipulation to take people's minds off something else. I haven't quite worked out what that something else is. But but when we're not allowed to talk about both sides of the science, when we're not allowed to talk about the political implications of what we're being force-fed, there's clearly something else. Uh, other people's interests are trying to Terrifies with a form of apocalypticism that effectively drives us into a different religion, that of placating Gaia, uh, placating, pl- placating what is effectively a fertility goddess, the Earth, uh, and surrendering our rights and our responsibilities to other people to keep us safe. Um, I mean, in in, in COP 28, politicians on small islands, which are only just above the sea, are screaming, you know, we're going, we're going, to, we're all going to die, but they they were saying that 20 years ago and 30 years ago, and there's been no great change in sea level at all. Um, that doesn't mean they're not, there, isn't, there isn't going to be one, but equally there could be a satellite, not a satellite, a comet that would could hit the Earth and cause mass devastation that could create another ice age. We're, we're almost certainly heading towards another ice age more than we're heading towards global warming, and if anything is keeping us from that, it's CO2, whether it's man-made or not man-made, and nobody appears to know since there are issues to do with the 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 sun not that i'm at all comfortable with human pollution i think human pollution is disgusting and there are things that we've done to the earth that are abominable and should be dealt with but they're more to do with plastic and destroying the viability of water than they are of co2 and runaway global warming so i i i don't think we're given the right information I'm not sure when we are given the right information, we can use it. Much of the computer modeling appears to be completely bizarre and unreliable. Uh, and I suspect there's some political motive motivation underneath, but it's not clear what it is. However, it's not WYSIWYG. What you see is definitely not what you get.
0: Interesting, yeah. Do you, uh, do you think, you, you mentioned sort of the uh, possibility of future there being like a Islam party, a Muslim party, within politics. Uh because if from my perspective, I almost think like at least they're like if they were to start a Islam party, um you'd then see it right in front of you and it could you know there's something to galvanize against, if you know what I mean. Uh do you think that will be would be more useful than actually hurt than hurt to uh the public at the moment?
1: Well, I know that if I was a Muslim, I'd want to hide the prospect of a Muslim party for as long as possible,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because uh, the point at which it becomes viable is the point where it will frighten people when they see what the implications are. So at the moment, there's a, a strategy to keep that from the public. Um, the difficulty is that the democracy is such a is such a blunt and incompetent way of managing our lives. It's just that everything <laughs> else is worse. Um, so. Uh, I mean there's no right wing of there's no there is no conservative political tradition left anymore. It's just a matter of how far left you go. Um with I think Nazism affected... sorry, not that was a Freudian slip. Uh I think with Islamism, and some people have described it as as Islamo fascism, which looked like an insult until one saw what happened in Gaza, whereupon I think Islamo fascism is exactly the right term so the, the the moderate right or the conservative those who would conserve the indigenous tradition have been wiped out by education and cultural polemicists, leaving only versions of the very dangerous left uh, and a very dangerous Islamic right. And that's going to be really quite a tough place for people to be politically, I think
0: yeah there there's something i i it's it makes me so disappointed to see. British culture dying because I you know pretty much all my favorite authors are uh, are from the British Isles and it seems like the quality there is just so immense that it's just it really is quite sad to oh I, I, I agree
1: but the answer is to buy books, <laughs> buy physical books and 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 keep them I mean both Huxley and Orwell in their great dystopian books. Foresaw uh, British English, British European culture disappearing and being eviscerated and forbidden. That's already happening. I mean, they're they're, they're changing, they're changing the books retrospectively. They're changing the language in them. They, they're no longer the same books, and they're they're even changing J.K. Rowling. Uh, the so the the only answer is to buy books and hide them and give them to your children. Uh, that's that's the way in which we'll have access to our culture. But I think it, I how think is it, J,
0: how are they changing J.K. Rowling?
1: oh um, editors are 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 changing um they're work, they're workifying both plots and people uh, changing pronouns and um
0: uh, Wait, removing... in the in the original books
1: Oh, yeah absolutely yeah. yes 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 yeah. i mean mainly mainly books of my childhood okay. um yeah. ch- children's books from my childhood but but a bit even way after my childhood so um i uh, there was 1970s there was a very well known author whom i i I didn't read, but other people loved. Um, what was his name? Uh, it'll, it'll come back. But I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> the editors are, are changing and republishing books right up to the millennium and beyond.
0: Yeah. They're, they don't want to keep history. History is, hi, well, history is an offense towards to them. History
1: is dangerous because it, it offers different values and, we're moving into a totalitarian culture where the, the different values must be suppressed in case people
0: choose them. Also, like the way they deal with censorship, the way they deal with, uh, you know, crushing old, you know, old culture, it's in my opinion, it seems like it's inevitable that it will have a backlash. And I'm not really sure, I don't think they'll be pleased with the backlash, and I don't even, I don't think we'll necessarily be happy with the backlash because it it probably won't be pretty
1: yes i don't know uh i i i'm afraid i think the power struggle is lost okay. so i think if you're talking about a backlash you're you're talk what you're talking about is describing a degree of protest i can think of a lot of people who would might want to protest about what's coming but whether they succeed or not i i think i think unlikely but um just because I think, well, I mean, again, the the internet has been terrifyingly effective of producing similar outlooks around the world. Um, the internet has been very effective in in producing a monochrome psychological and value system that people are terrified of being excluded from.
0: It's, but it also, at the same time, uh, connects, you know, people like you and me.
1: Yeah, no, it's amazing. It, it is it is both the best and the worst of all things. Yes, it it allows you know it, it creates the most disgusting kinds of pornography and allows the very best kinds of conversation. In a <laughs> sense, it's the it's the you know it's the theological dilemma um, writ large because you know that's what free will does. It produces both the very worst and the very best under God.
0: Well, do you think the I mean the very best as long as somebody like Elon Musk hopefully uh you know ke- ke- uh, keeps control over uh these pl- uh, you know you know he has he bought Twitter which is now X and he has opened it up and really uh i guess kept kept allowed the good and i mean he allows some of the bad too there's a plenty of bad on there as well but everywhere else the good is being eroded so you know at least there's something there
1: yes i mean this is this is the theological principle behind what what love wins is aiming at but, but missing i mean it's you know god wins god wins because he's made human beings in his own image and we're restless until we find our rest in him as augustine said so one of the reasons for being opt, op, not optimistic for having a theology of hope for christians is that Human beings don't like hell, most of them, and they won't be comfortable in the hell they've made for themselves. And every so often there'll be figures who respond and resonate to the good, as I think Musk has done in some respects. Uh, I've I've certainly become a great fan of his and pray for him, and I'm very grateful to him.
0: It's also strange because he seems like he's kind of woken up only within the last couple of years.
1: Well, it took me till I was in my mid fifties to wake up.
0: So he's way ahead of me. But he, and he, I mean, he is the richest man in the world. Poor man. What a terrible burden. It, it <laughs> what, what an awful, awful burden. <laughs> I, I would not want to be the richest man in the world. Certainly uh, he has to make a whole lot of decisions that I don't think any of us would want to deal with. Absolutely. Right um you know it, it makes me think of just uh the the story about the rich man having trouble getting through the eye of the needle um which i don't know if you've heard this i've heard that it, it was the name of a gate in uh in jerusalem have you heard that
1: oh yes uh, indeed i have but um Whichever way you tell the story, it's still true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes. uh, so the question, you know, was, was Jesus using a metaphor from everyday architectural life? You know, maybe he was. Was he or was he just using the biggest thing and the smallest thing known to the human eye? Uh, it doesn't. It, it still means that the richer you are, the harder it is to let go your ego. But the wonderful news is with God, nothing is impossible. Even rich people can be saved.
0: Yeah, I like to think about it as in like you'd have to uh abandon all your things. like in that with that gate, you'd have to abandon all your things, you'd have to go in by yourself. And that's yeah. the only that's basically the only way. And you know, people say it's it's similar to the you can't take the things of the world with you. It it's almost it's very similar to that.
1: It is. So many of the things that Jesus said were self-evidently true. When you, but but he applied them in a way, with him at the center and inviting people to literally to wake up. I mean, salvation is also a process of waking up, which is why the woke, you know, the woke always take Christian ideas and then pervert them. It's they're parasitic upon upon the goodness, the beauty, and the truth. Um, Evil can't create; it always has to borrow and twist out of shape.
0: In uh, I mean, from what from what I can tell like marxism and socialism came from i like to think that those two came from sort of catholic cultures looking for fixes to the industrial evolution and then liberalism came out of uh, protestant culture mainly uh do you think, yes, I, think you... I think
1: i think you make an argument for saying that um liberalism has changed a great deal mm-hmm. it's not what it thought it was but it's certainly the case that that um, uh, that, that Marxism is a Christian heresy, um, as all, all utopians on the whole are, are Christian heresies. We're, we're designed for heaven. We'll get to heaven by dying. But impatient people think that they can create heaven on earth, which will, of course, inevitably really require force and therefore a lot of torture and killing. Um, so every,
0: every dystopia. Uh... Yeah. Every utopia, no. every dystopia is brought about by trying to create a utopia. Right. Which, interesting enough, you know, utopia, from my understanding, doesn't mean good place. It means no place.
1: Absolutely. That's what, that was why Thomas More, who wrote one of the first treatises of it, chose the word. Um, it, was a, it was it was meant to be a joke. This, does, this place doesn't <laughs> exist. It's nowhere.
0: Yeah. And then my understanding, Marx read that and was like, He makes good points, like as if like it's possible.
1: Yes, I'm afraid. I'm afraid there's a great deal wrong with Marx, not just his economics.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but like, how can you take? How can you think satire is actually the answer to your problem?
1: Well, the left don't understand satire; they have no sense of humor, so they usually miss most most of the truth that lies beneath satire.
0: Yeah, they they're missing the whole point of life, just as they miss the whole point of Christianity. They, yeah. they always take sort of the most uh, almost useless aspects that like, you know, w- only work in uh, tandem with everything else. But they take it out and then they try and use it for their own uh, benefit or, you know, for their own use. This is what like a lot of, you know, quote unquote Christian politicians often use. They'll, they'll use their faith somehow to uh, argue for anything remotely opposite such as like abortion or uh you know anything like that they will all of this is malformed christianity and then you have sort of this i mean islam in some sense is malformed christianity too i mean it's it's not um not exactly it's it's as i like to say um it's what you would imagine a religion that is taken from sort of zoroastrianism And the sort of the what you think Christianity and Judaism are saying, uh, uh, put into practice by a a pedophile warlord.
1: Uh, Yes,
0: all that's true. And then, you know, of course, what does a warlord do to gain power? He he promises people, uh, you know, immense wealth and pleasure. And then he conquers at every place he can get to. Yep. And that's that's basically what, we're de- what you're dealing with. Like, but this was imported by uh, Westerners for you know for you know what reason I don't understand. Uh, maybe because they thought, oh, we want uh, we want more people. From, uh, you know, we want diversity. Even though I don't think that's what they would have said. You know, like 20, 30 years ago, would they? They wouldn't have said we need diversity.
1: No, diversity is is a uh, is a trick, um, d- d- derived by the Frankfurt School, in order to bring about uh, an exchange of power relations. Um, I mean, that doesn't mean what it says. But I think we should also say that to be fair, that Islam has a great deal of good in it. It's just that um, it has a great deal of good culturally and philosophically uh, and to some extent spiritually. It certainly has a discipline that many Christians lack. But the problem is that uh, Allah is not Yahweh. Allah is uh, a non-negotiating moral force uh, whom you cannot know and be in relationship with. And so This changes our understanding of what it is to be a human being. There's something much more instrumentalist about being a human being in Muslim culture than there is within Judeo-Christian culture where we're made in the image of God whom we're invited to know and love and be loved by. It's a very different picture. That doesn't make everything in Islam wrong any more than it makes everything in Christianity virtuous. The trouble is both these systems are inhabited by people and people can, can both enrich and, and despoiled depending on what caliber people they are um, but if you have to choose ultimately i think one of the most sensible ways is, is to talk about choosing between muhammad and jesus who in whose company would you want to be who would you want to be judged by who would you want to be saved or constrained by and for me there's it's an absolute no-brainer it's it's i am i've been profoundly in love with jesus ever since i discovered who he was and i've never i've never been anything but uh um, well, I have I have a number of responses to, to Mohammed uh, gauging, moving from uh, uh, respect of what he achieved to profound mistrust and alarm at what he's likely to do. So uh, I, I think one of the things we should do as Christians is to say that if you're choosing between Marx, Mohammed, and Jesus, Jesus is much the better and more attractive bet.
0: Indeed. I mean, I... As I described Muhammad, I don't think you'd want to pick that that description as the person you want to follow.
1: Well, except if you were a Muslim, you would to be fair to Muslims, they could uh. do a much better job of presenting an attractive character than you did. You didn't try very hard.
0: Well, uh. I was I really wasn't <laughs> trying. I uh I I think those are the most important aspects, at least uh um in denoting the character of Muhammad, of course, they would disagree. I,
1: I well, I think I think we have to do better than that. I, okay. I don't I don't think we want to win an argument by being unfair or by being underinformed. Muhammad must have been the most extraordinary person. Um, but but if we're going to exercise discernment, I think what's most interesting is is the spiritual life behind him. So to to, to my mind, he was clearly somebody who. Uh, instinctively, intuitively, spiritually had had access to a range of spiritual experience. That is assuming he existed and assuming he wrote the Quran. And these actually are, these are not, they're they're not as obvious assumptions as they might seem at first sight. The Quran didn't appear until 200 years afterwards. And there's some really quite interesting theories about how it emerged. But it's very unfair because um, the, the, the German higher scholarships claimed some very rude things about the Christian scriptures which were just completely untrue but might apply to the Quran Well, but they would never have applied to the Quran because the Quran has never made itself accessible to that kind of intellectual investigation but if Muhammad existed in the form we're told he did and if he constructed the Quran uh, he must have been a very interesting person but my understanding is that he lacked the capacity to tell the difference between uh, holy spirits and unholy spirits and even there i don't hold that particularly against him since i spent the whole of my life trying to develop that facility as well and it's not as easy as it seems it's called the charism of discernment in christianity but uh, uh I, I think i don't think there's any point in disrespecting Mohammed. i think we should pity him but but hold him accountable for uh hold him accountable for for what flowed from his teaching and um and and that's an awful lot of death.
0: How about to be uh fair to him, maybe let's uh and you can tell me you know more about Islam than I do, but if you, you we compared uh someone from the Bible to Muhammad, would Solomon be something of uh a character uh comparable?
1: I think the person who's most comparable would probably be Moses. Moses, really uh, because, like,
0: well, well, I mean, Solomon was much. I mean, Moses, from my understanding, is he's in heaven, and Solomon was corrupted almost utterly by. Yes. Uh, I don't. Yeah. I don't
1: mean like. I don't mean like as in as in personality or virtue. Okay. I mean like as in type. So okay. what did Moses do? Moses took a people from nowhere, effectively, uh, and and created created a people. Uh, in the Promised Land, and gave them a whole load of rules to live by. Well, Muhammad did something really very similar to that. Okay, it's just that Moses really did get them from God, and I don't think Muhammad Muhammad did. I think that the uh, the some of the you know the Quran is a very complex mis- mixture. It's made much more difficult by the fact it's in Arabic and is therefore um, much more difficult to get your head around if you don't speak Arabic. And, and I don't, so I. Uh, I have some Greek and some Hebrew, but I don't have any Arabic. Uh, but the problem still is that th- there's an incongruous mixture of ethics in the Quran that really doesn't make sense. It doesn't doesn't hang together as a as a theological work. It doesn't even hang together as to, a to reflect a single deity um, because there are some rather beautiful bits in the Quran and some extremely ugly bits. So then you know if they both what what is if if those are both a true reflection of the deity that's you know, that means the ultimate reality is profoundly confusing and conflicted. Um, well, I think that's most unlikely, and so I don't think I don't think the Quran is a, a reflection of ultimate reality. In which case, it's a composite mixture of of truth and error. Um, so then we have to decide what is the truth and what is the error. But but you know why do that when you have the Gospels and you have the Logos, you have you know have Jesus the way the truth and the life. Um, I, I can't see much need to spend time on Muhammad as a, as a less competent prophetic figure when we have, when we have Jesus and all the real prophets.
0: Indeed. Yeah. That's, that's uh, very well said. Um, it it is interesting. Just also like Islam, like made it all made itself all the way to, um, the doors of France, uh, you know, many, many years ago, uh, probably like at least a thousand or more. Well, from, the, from, from the
1: south and west, it made its way to France at the Battle of Tours in yep. about the 6th century. And then from the east and south, it made its way to Vienna yep. in, in uh, the 16th century. So Islam has been banging on the doors of Europe to take it over by force uh, for a very long
0: time. Really, the way they've done it is more so a invitation.
1: Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, that's... that's uh, uh, that seems to me to be part of the ignorance of, of European culture. I mean, the great, best example of that was, uh, was Angela Merkel, who invited a, a million Syrian Muslim refugees in. The, the difficulty with this is that it's hard to know whether it's incompetence or conspiracy. In England, for example, uh, 98% of the refu- Syrian refugees who were given at asylum here were Muslim. Uh, and that that's a misrepresentation of the construction of Syrian society. There were quite a large number of Syrian Christians, Christians but yeah. for reasons but for reasons I don't understand, and one suspects conspiracy, what else could it be? Christian Syrians were kept out of Britain and not allowed asylum, but Muslim but only Muslim Syrians were. Well, that suggests some level of social engineering from within our political system. Uh,
0: Especially with with the threat on Christians in the the Near East. Yes, exactly. So again, I don't have any
1: information, but it, but it, it causes me concern. It makes me
0: suspicious. Also, it just seems another element that lends itself to conspiracy is the fact that we basically set it up in the early 2000s where... We would then we go into the Middle East. The United States mostly would go in uh, into the Middle East and create many wars, and then those that would create the situation where there would need to be refugees.
1: Well, I'm I'm afraid I'm a <clears throat> I'm a follower of, a professor Mearsheimer, um, uh, who who is the best example of uh, the the realist uh, historical tradition and. Uh, I, I've come to the conclusion that American foreign policy over the last 60 years has been completely disastrous to everybody and not well-intentioned.
0: I, I agree completely. The U.S. foreign policy is, has has never been helpful to the United States and has or, never or been anybody helpful else. to
1: the world. What? <laughs> or to anybody else. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's literally <laughs> been almost entirely useless and you know, there's a um, there's a, a podcaster, uh, a famous libertarian podcaster that uh, that likes to say that uh, if you want to know who the United States is enemies will next enemies will be, look at the people we're currently funding.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm af- I'm afraid that's true.
0: It's entirely um, true. Well, <clears throat> I think I think that's uh, where we should uh, leave it, uh, Gavin. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You are wonderful and your work is fantastic um so if if you're not following gavin's work please go follow him on twitter uh facebook and uh youtube uh so gavin is there anything coming up that you want to uh, sort of p- plug
1: uh, no, I, I don't think so. Except that my my team of friends work under Catholic Unscripted, and uh, we're on YouTube together as well. Um, please come and follow us and support the venture. We think we're we, we think we're in an answer to Fulton Sheen's prophecy that there will come a point in in the Catholic Church's life when uh, the the laity will have to take responsibility for a reinvigoration of Catholic vision, and we hope we're doing that, and we'd be glad to be supported. But Connor, thank you for your kind words. They're they're a reflection on your generosity of spirit more than they are on me. Uh, I'm very grateful. Uh, Thank you for your friendship. It's been great talking to you.
0: Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, Please like, share, comment, and subscribe. And God bless.